James said it really wasn't because industry wasn't ready, they were ready and they wanted to go ahead with it. And obviously we saw several car companies criticising the government for its, its policies. Um, and it wasn't really because that target couldn't be met, because she can be met. Um, it was that the government was worried about public support. And I see that then as a failure of the current government to explain to people what's happening, to bring them on the journey, to reassure them that even if the infrastructure isn't here this year, it will, there'll be more of it next year and more of it the year beyond and so on. And I think we, will, we do face that challenge in electrification because actually we, haven't, we, we have a lot of the technologies, we have a lot of the solutions we need to decarbonise homes and transport here, but we do have some things that are going to, going to be difficult and where we don't yet know exactly what the best solution is. So, for example... Heat pumps can go in almost all types of UK housing, but some are going to be more difficult to decarbonise than others. Solutions for small flats, for example, where individual air source heat pumps aren't particularly good. We have some of those solutions available, but they're not necessarily, it's not, not very easy to say to someone, this is exactly what you should do right now. So we have to, I think, be quite upfront with people that we can do a lot of this right now, straight away, it's not, there's not big barriers to it. And some things, we, we have some ideas, but we need to be able to build on that. And now people who are better at public communication can, than me can work out how we tell that story. But I think that kind of transparency about there are some things we don't, we don't know yet, there's some things that aren't working great yet, that helps to build trust, actually, to be able to admit that we don't know everything. And last thing I wanted to say was that, um, you know, Juliet mentioned some of this, we have done these types of transitions before, and other people are doing them as well. So we can learn from what's gone before. Um, we're not alone. Like all other European countries, the US, um, most countries in the world are, are trying to do something similar. And um, We're not unique, even though our newspapers would like to claim that we are. I mean, there was an article this week about heat pumps that claimed that our geology was so unique that they couldn't possibly work here without explaining why. Um, we're not actually that unique. Yes, there are some different things about our energy system and our housing than some other countries, but there are also many things that are very similar. And we can definitely learn from our peers and nick some of their good ideas. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I think I'll, I'll leave that there as opening remarks. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. Um, Clem. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I, just stepping up a level, um, I think it's worth noting before we even start talking about how to electrify an economy, it's why you might want to. And aside from the climate benefits of it, an electrified economy uses 40% less energy than a fossil fuel economy. Um, using less energy means you can produce more goods for the same costs, and that means you can grow your economy faster. Um, so what, you, what we're talking about is electrification equals efficiency equals productivity equals growth. And so there's a very clear mandate here for if we, if we want to grow as an economy, which we do, and there's a global race for growth, we, we absolutely need to, to electrify. Um, heat pumps use a quarter of the energy of gas boilers. Um, and heating homes with hydrogen will at least double gas bills. Octopus has just given its first zero pounds quote um, for a heat pump. That's after the, after the boiler upgrade scheme grant. And as we scale, we will make heat pumps cost competitive with a gas boiler, even without subsidy. Um, installing heat pumps are AI, is, a, is an AI-proof job. Uh, we're going to need to install... I mean, the government has, has talked about 600... Um, uh, 600,000 a year, actually, we think that's, that's under-ambitious. If we get the policy right on this, we will easily be installing a million per, a million per year by, by the end of the decade. And, and really, what we should be doing is just 
replacing every single boiler with a heat pump, which is 1.7 million boilers we replace in this country per year. We have the capacity at the moment, um, we've, we've invested £10 million in the capacity to train 1,000 installers per year, and we will open up more centres to, to train more, more um, heat pump installers. And we've bought a factory to manufacture our own heat pumps here in the UK with our own IP. Um, it's uh, very noticeable that the gas industry is here in force at Labour Conference trying to sell hydrogen snake oil. Um, and I think that's <laughs> because they know their own extinction event is nigh. Um, and you could call that karma. Uh, Labour has pledged £28 billion per year to, to spend on net zero. And I would suggest that they should spend £5 billion of that removing levies on electricity bills. Not only would that bring cost of bills down by £200 per year, but it would allow us to crowd in private sector investment and in catalyzing that electrification we need to deliver a efficient, productive, electrified economy. Thank you very much. Um, Sarah. <laughs> Panel is too large. Um, how do I say something that nobody else has said? I'll tell you what, um, I think that it's worth uh, building a little bit on what Clem was saying about the potential for economic growth. So investing in an ambitious transition to net zero would see the British economy grow by 6.4% compared to the current trajectory we're on. That's equivalent to the size of the manufacturing sector. That's huge, right? The size of the prize, if we go with the net zero, the most ambitious net zero trajectory we can is huge. Um, and we've heard a lot about people and behaviour change, and um, I think that's absolutely right. We do need to think about what's going to happen to people's homes. The reality is we need to do three big things to people's homes. We do need to get, get we need to decarbonise heat, we need to improve energy efficiency, and we need to get, uh, get homes using energy smartly, right? Using it when it's cheapest and most plentiful on the grid. And that's a, that's a lot for people to kind of take on. That's a lot of disruption, that's potentially redecorating, that's moving things around. So we have to think about how we do that carefully, how we give people the elements of choice and control that we can whilst we can, because the longer we wait, the less control and choice you actually have, I think, um, to do this, because time we will run out of time. I think one of the things that we haven't also touched on, Ravi, is around the sort of infrastructure and the system changes that we need. The reality is we have, we have a conversation over here about investing in clean power generation, and we have a conversation over here about changing things in people's homes, and we, we desperately need to improve our infrastructure to improve not just the infrastructure, the governance, dig digitizing it, making it smart so we can move that energy around um, in the right way. So uh, I'll stop there because I think that's the most I can say that adds to it. I think everyone has brought a different angle to this and it gives you a bit of a, gives you a good insight as to the, the breadth of this conversation. Hmm. Right, and I deliberately left Jeff to the last because <laughs> you can um, address all of those. Oh, oh, oh thanks. <laughs> um, okay, thank you. Um, I think it was Madeline said that we build trust when we don't. We, when we admit we don't know everything, so I'm going to start by building trust. <laughs> um, I, I I've been in this job for four weeks now, and I'm um, I'm going to start with the caveat that I've given to every fringe meeting that I I've, I've been to, which is that I'm here very much to listen and learn. I don't have all the answers, um, but uh, I'm very keen to sort of engage with the uh, engage with stakeholders in the industry and engage with the experts and uh, and listen to the experts. Um, having said that. Uh, Ed uh, Milliband has set out our, our plan for um, the 28 billion. I was very proud, actually, a couple of years ago um, that the 28 billion um, investment 
uh, was the first big pledge for, the, for, the, for a future Labour government. And I think that's a really important signal uh, of, our, of our priorities. Uh, and Ed has talked about the four crises that we face, the cost of living crisis, the climate crisis, the energy and security crisis, and the jobs crisis. And clean homegrown energy and decarbonisation is the answer to all those different crises, um, because we know that um, it creates jobs and it will drive growth, and we know that it will reduce bills because renewable energy... Uh, it's cheaper. Um, key, I think, to, I mean, just looking briefly at, at, at homes and then transport, I think key in terms of homes, we've talked about our warm homes plan. Um, so part of that um, 28 billion is the plan to uh, retrofit and, and make more carbon efficient 19 million homes. So spending six billion pounds a year on that, trying to get uh, all those homes upgraded to um, the PCC rating at least. Um, and doing that through local authorities, I can see one a couple, a couple of people from local authorities here. So, um, so we want to work together with local authorities as well as the as well as the industry. Um, in terms of, um, I suppose, the system, um, it's a big system that I've learned a lot about in the last uh, three or four weeks. Um, we need the future system operator for all our. Well, we need, we need a couple of things. We need Great British Energy, our new our new. Um, uh, publicly owned energy company uh, to be um, ambitious in investing and in, in giving the private sector the reassurance and the incentive to invest in the industries that we need. Um, and we need, uh, we need to reform the grid because it's all very well saying um, we, we want to build all this renewable energy, um, but if we can't get out, out to homes or to transport systems, um, it's, it's, uh, it can be wasted. It, you know, up to £62 million a day is being wasted in constraint payments. So um, really important, and there's been, you've probably noticed over the last couple of days, um, both Keir and Rachel and, uh, and Ed all talking about uh, improving the grid in order to get that, that, um, that uh, clean power out to, out to homes and to, um, uh, to transport networks. Just a brief, a brief word then on transport. Um, on the, on the um, phasing out of the 2030 to 25 shift that Rishi Sunak has made, I mean, it was very disappointing, if for no other reason, that it, it creates that uncertainty that I think James referred to. Um, all, 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 the car, all the car manufacturers were, were ready for, or almost all were ready for 2030, and were, were aiming for 2030, and some of them are still pledging 2030, so there's no real reason to do it other than the fact that it was entirely a political decision uh, and you know the the government Rishi Sunak had looked at the uh, Uxbridge by-election looked at the wedge issue that they created with ULES there and thought well maybe we can we can have a similar wedge issue elsewhere and it's it's frustrating because the one thing when we talk to to industry and to the to the sector is that uh, people want stability and certainty and they want to have a plan they can work to and so when you start shifting the goalposts like that um, it's not good for it's not good for anybody, um, and the other disappointing decision, in my view, over the last um, couple of weeks uh, was HS2. Partly because of the signal it sends out that we can't do big infrastructure in this country properly, but also it would have made a big difference to um, to decarbonising transport because we what we would have done, what we would have had the opportunity to do was get some of the, the freight that's currently on our roads onto. Um, the network by expand by expanding the capacity with HS2, we could have got some of that freight that 
currently runs up and down the M6 in, in big traffic jams onto onto the West Coast Main Line. And um, that decision, I think, was a really um, disappointing one. I mean, I, I would say that I'm a Mancunian uh, <laughs> MP, but I, I think it's not just disappointing for Manchester. I think it's disappointing um, for the country. So I think there's um, what you will find. I hope if we have a Labour government, you will find. Um, a party that's committed to this agenda as an absolute priority, not just to, to meet our climate targets, um, but because it is the economic opportunity of the 21st century, um, net zero, and we need to be out there leading it and making the most of that opportunity. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, I suspect we're going to focus quite a lot on heat pumps and decarbonising heat in this conversation because of what people have said. But I want to start... Then, shall I? <laughs> exactly. <okay. laughs> so, so I thought I'd actually start with cars so that you don't get forgotten, James. Okay. Um, I, I guess my main question is, you know, we've seen um, very strong electrification efforts in, uh, in cars ahead of probably where people predicted 10 years ago. But the next leg of the journey is a bit harder. You're talking about people with off-street parking, perhaps people who've only got one car. Um, how confident are you in the pace being maintained and what should a Labour government do to actually accelerate or maintain that pace? So I think part of the job I've felt I've needed to do in the last year is actually just sort of calm people down a little bit, is that at the moment just over 2% of all cars on the road are electric. By 2030, you're still talking about 20 to 30% of all cars will be EV. We actually have quite a long time to get these charge points into the ground and I think whether it's 300,000, 400,000, most of the industry and most people hate those figures anyway because yeah, we, the, the right charging solution may not be something that you can mandate in that way. But we have got a long time to do it. And if this, can't, if this country can't put in 300,000 plugs, I really don't know what we can do anymore. I mean, obviously we can't do HS2, but this is not that challenging. It really isn't. And I think there is a lot of scaremongering that goes on on this. You will still be able to drive your petrol and diesel car until the 24th. I mean, you can drive it for, for as long as you want. Yeah. We're not getting rid of them. Mm. Um, so there, there will still be petrol and diesel cars in 2040, 2045. And the really good thing that I think about it is that it's a better technology. We're not, this is not a hair shirt industry. People have driven EVs, over 95% of people would never go back. Um, and that is only going to get better as the infrastructure gets better. They are a better technology, which is nice for uh, me. And will we build the right plugs in the right places? Um, and in particular, the question about sort of fast charging versus slow charging and the implications in terms of grid upgrades, because we could get something that's suboptimal from an infrastructure perspective. Definitely. And I think also, I would like to see industry take a bit more of the lead on this. I think the government, the problem is that the government has promised 450 million and, uh, to, for, for charges, which sounds brilliant, apart from a lot of that probably private companies, if you got out of the way, would deliver it. I'd love to sort of, bend, it, sort of grab that money, say, let's wait, we've got the money, and in seven to eight years time, let's see where the market failures are. Um, because we released a map earlier uh, last week, so if you want to go on EVA constituency map, you can check where your constituency is. And you'll see that rapids are actually reasonably well distributed um, geographically. Uh, On-street charges are definitely not. They are very centred in London, in, uh, in Manchester, Birmingham. But that's for a reason. Once you get out of London, you're talking about 80, 90% of people have, their, have a driveway. So they can install the charge point. In 2030, 2035, we will start needing to see more on-street places in remote areas. But where we are at the moment, mostly, if you've got a driveway, it's almost a no-brainer to get an EV. And if you're in London like me and you're lucky to have six lamppost chargers on your street, 
it also makes sense. If you live in Abergavenny and you commute to um, Aberdeen every day and you're in a village and you don't have access to, your, uh, to a driveway, I probably wouldn't recommend an EV for you right yet. Probably wait for that solution. But we are getting there. Great. Okay, let's move on to heat pumps. You can get your coat now. Cool. <laughs> um, I'll just put the podcast on. And... <laughs> um, I sort of sort of paint two scenarios on, on heat pumps and just get your views on which do you think we're in. Um, scenario one is quite an optimistic one where you have this regulation to phase out boiler sales from 2035 and maybe that gets slightly firmed up with a new Labour government. Um, you've also got... Um, maybe a little bit of movement on levies to make sure that the electricity to gas price ratio gets a little bit better, but maybe it doesn't do enough, not quite what we'd want. Um, but in conjunction with, with those things, companies like Octopus make the product cheaper, better, take some of the hassle out, make it more aspirational, and we get enough early adoption that there's momentum, there's, there's, you know, there's 60, 70, 100,000 being built towards the latter end, latter end of this decade, um, and therefore government can stick to that regulation of 2035 phase-out. You've got enough proof and enough momentum that they can say, look, this is a better technology, it's a, as, as cheap, um, and, 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 and let's stick with it. In the same way that there's probably not that much political opposition to the EV ban, really. Um, sorry, the, the combustion engine ban. Now, that's the sort of the positive scenario. I think the negative one is that you have a vague 2035 regulation, as you've got now, there is a, a bit done on, on levies, as I said, but you still get very slow deployment over the next few years, partly because of the industry not really being geared up, still lots of uncertainty. Um, uh, you, you've still got hassle factors. It's still, a, it's still an unfamiliar technology to many people. And at that point, you get a load of lobbying from the gas industry. You get the Conservative Party against the heat pumps. That also creates uncertainty. And you start to make that 2035 phase out less credible by the minute. Um, and, and, we, and we then sort of think, well, we should have actually done more to turbocharge the rollout in the next few years. And I'm just interested in people's views on, are they, are they optimistic or pessimistic? Um, and then if they are pessimistic, what should we do about it? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I know where you're going to be. Well, well, <laughs> given that we're um, investing rather a lot of money in, in one of those scenarios, um, I would say that uh, obviously it's the first one. The first one, except that, what I would also say is we, ha we have never wanted and never called for a ban on boilers um, because we don't think we need it. Because in, your, in scenario A, well, by the time we get to 2035, we'll have forgotten all about boilers. There'll be a, a just there'll just be a technology that kind of pe a bit like very difficult to buy, uh, you know, <coughs> very difficult to buy a tumble dryer these days. It's not a heat pump tumble dryer. Um, we, very few people um, buy ice boxes anymore. They definitely buy fridges. You know, just we we have we have um, better technologies that just come in, do the job better, and then. And then everyone forgets about what went before, and I think that's that's what we're looking at with heat pump. So long as we get some policies right on it, and they are not difficult policies to get right, we are artificially creating a um, a barrier to heat pump deployment by imposing those levies on electricity bills. Um, my boss Greg sometimes likens it to putting a sugar tax on on bottled water. It's just we are taxing the wrong thing, and then we're creating the wrong behaviours, and that's having that's feeding through into our entire economy. But actually, what we've got now is incredibly good heat heat pumps. We are standardising 
um, and operationalizing the, the installation of them such that we are dramatically reducing both the cost and the so-called hassle factor. We're able to install high temperature heat pumps now um, at the equivalent cost to a gas boiler that will that remove the need for radiator upgrades and um, any significant pipe work up upgrades. So the, the, the innovation coming down the line, by the way, British manufacturing in innovation is absolutely astonishing. We don't really need much. We need some small tweaks. The clean heat market mechanism is actually, I think, more a, um, more a, a policy to support the boiler industry because at the moment you've got a lot of short-term targets as, as, as you know there's a lot of short-term thinking it's it's middle management trying to achieve annual targets rather than trying to think about the sustainability of manufacturing jobs in this country and what we need to make sure is that, um, that the kind of annual bonus incentive structure of, of, of boiler manufacturers doesn't get in the way of making sure that we are building the manufacturing jobs of the future here in the UK rather than just sweating the, the the boiler manufacturing assets and then losing out to Europe once they've built all the heat pumps. And so actually, as soon as that starts to feed through, you will get, you'll get a real strong signal sent to um, boiler installers that they should retrain. Okay. That, 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 and people will start to understand how much better a technology heat pumps are than, than boilers, much less explosive. <laughs> so that's the really op very optimistic case, so optimistic we don't even need a, any regulation um, on the phase out. Sarah, where, where are you at? Um, I think I think if we if we stick with the optimistic scenario, it will only really work if a load of other things happen, like reinforcing the grid, and because the same anticipatory investment that we find it so hard to make decisions about to help with the char EV chargers is the same anticipatory investment we need to. Those are the decisions we need to make to reinforce the grid so that people can electrify heat in their homes as well. So, you know, the, those, are, those are things we have not been very good at in this country. We've been not been good at um, kind of unlocking the potential and, and thinking about those cross-subsidies, you know, the balance between keeping things affordable for people now versus what it might mean for future, so that current versus future customers is what I'm thinking about. We're not very good at thinking about this, well, we think about them, but we do nothing about them. I guess that's the point I'm making, is that cross-subsidies exist in any policy area. It's why we have politics, because people have to make decisions. And I think one of the reasons we haven't gotten anywhere with this is because we have been lacking in kind of bold, decisive action from government in moving some of this forward. So I guess to come to your question, option A or option B, option A, great, but it, with it has to be a load of stuff around what's the regulatory governance framework that changes the current system because we need to phase out gas and we need to get ready for a, a more uh, electricity dependent system whilst also at the same time thinking about what the protections we need for people uh, in their homes the reality is is that you know when we talk about moving things like sub subsidies from electricity to gas all of the research shows that often it's those who can least afford it who end up carrying the greatest burden of the, the, the costs so we need to think quite carefully about fairness and how we're protecting people. And then with that comes perhaps, you know, a whole conversation around how we review the electricity market arrangements and what retail market reform looks like. And I'm not just sort of throwing in a load of jargon I'm, for, for the sake of it. I think what I'm trying to say is that, is that just because it's complex doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Yeah, great. Matt? 
So overall, I'm optimistic as well. Um, and one of the things that makes me optimistic is um, some things Ken's been talking about in terms of the offers that are coming forward from companies like Octopus, but not just Octopus, in terms of making it really simple, really attractive for consumers to get heat pumps. And I think we are starting to see now some uptick in interest as a result of that, at least anecdotally. Um, and I also th I think one other thing that makes me optimistic is that I think we know that there is a fairly substantial minority who are really interested in acting on, on this even now. So um, surveys, not just ours, but others show consistently around, I think 12% of people say they want to, they, you know, they intend to get a heat pump in the next um, sort of one to three years. And that kind of, yeah, it seems to be consistent across research. Um, and, and so we kind of think that there's quite a, a Group, a group of people who are willing to act, and I think that gives us a chance to kind of, if, as you were saying, Ravi, if we can get the policies in place to turbocharge that, we can really take advantage of it. So if 12% if of people did replace their boiler with a heat pump when it comes to the end of their life, uh, end of its life, we'd be looking at 150,000 to 200,000 heat pumps going in each year. So that would, that would be a real big step up on where we are now. Um, I think the, um, the things that make me you know, slightly more concerned are um, so, for example, if we don't see we don't see that proportion of people saying they're interested going up over time, that will be concerning because we will need more than 12% of people to, to switch their boilers for heat pumps if we're going to hit the 600,000 or a million targets by the end of the year, uh, end of the decade rather. Um, and one thing that I saw in um, government research that's concerned me slightly was that although the proportion of people saying they were interested was staying relatively stable, the proportion of people who said they weren't was growing because before most people just didn't really know <laughs> they had no view but it did seem, seem to be that people who were who were kind of gaining a view when they previously didn't have one were going to the negative side and that was relatively small numbers but i think that is probably reflective of the, the discourse we have around these technologies at the moment um i think going back swinging back to the positive i think one thing that we've we've learned from our own research is that people who do have heat pumps are overwhelmingly pleased with them and and satisfaction levels are really high they're comparable with satisfaction levels of people who have boilers. You know, ideally, we want that to go beyond, as, as Clem was saying, this is, you know, it's going to be a better technology for people. But at the moment, you know, these are things that people like, right? So if we can get people, you know, people more widely to have a sort of more positive view of heat pumps, I think we can, we can sort of start converting some of that interest into action. So it sounds like we've joined a heat pump sales fair. Um, <laughs> who, who, do you want to come in, Jeff? Well, I'll, I'll bri briefly, yeah, I should perhaps be, be clear, Ravi, you, you said when uh, in 2035 uh, the policy might be firmed up by a Labour government. We've never actually committed to the 2035 deadline for, for boilers um, because, as I understand it, we, we don't really see the pathway there yet um, to, that, to, that, uh, to that date. So you, could, uh, clearly, you, you could go slower than the Conservative Party. Well, no, we want to try and find a way to go faster. Okay, mm. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it's because it's clearly the right thing to do. We need to we need to um, shift to heat pumps over gas boilers, and it should be cheaper for for people to run. But um, the, we don't think the government has set out a, a clear plan for that. Having said that, there are lots of um, options. I think we could be looking at. I was a I was having a conversation earlier on today with somebody who's saying. Um, there are different ways of, of, of incentivizing this. Maybe uh, very much at the moment the responsibility is on the individual rather than uh, to, to get a heat pump. Maybe we, there, are, there are ways of making it part of the kind of service agreement with a, with a, a supplier. Um, so you, you lease the, the, the heat pump, for example. Um, so it's kind of an integral part of the service like a, like a, like a smart meter is. Um, 
in Germany, the KFW Bank provides very cheap loans and, and expertise in, in fitting that, um, that's underwritten by government. We need, obviously, that's part of a kind of wider retail energy market reform, and we've not set out a policy on it, on, on those things yet. But um, I suppose what I'm saying is I, I am optimistic that this is the right thing to do, that, and, and there are different ways of, of looking at it. I'm encouraged by, by Juliet's optimism, by the optimism of the rest of the panel, um, that there are um, the, there is the the public will and the I guess the industry expertise to make it happen. One yeah. thing I would suggest is not, is not um, ever using smart meter rollout as a, as a model for, <laughs> yeah, for yeah, achieving any technology <laughs> good transformation. Point. Yeah, 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 that is a good point. Julia. Um, well, very excited to hear the KFW um, shout out. That's one of E3G's um, pet favourite um, projects. Um, I mean, my sense is that it's all to play for. I do think when we see companies like Octopus, um, that gives me a lot of reason for optimism. But then when I look at the monthly boiler upgrade scheme stats and it's just plateauing, I'm like, what's going on here? Why can't we install heat pumps? Um, and I think the point you made about spreading the upfront costs and um, thinking about alternative business models and financial services is kind of something else which could really help unlock that mass market. We've got a model in the UK where people normally buy a heating um, appliance as like a, a distress order um, when their, um, their last one's broken down. Um, but in other countries, we have seen leasing, so that's going to spread the cost. We've seen things like heaters of service, where people are buying um, the product and the electricity as a bundle every month. Um, so there's different models um, which we could explore, and people need to get comfortable with them, because that's not what we're used to here in the UK. And I think, um, like uh, Dara mentioned, consumer protections will be really important for getting people comfortable with these new models. So yeah, I do think it's all to play for. I think there's reasons to be optimistic. But I, I do think the government needs to hold its nerve on this because there's a lot of lobbying. There's a lot of misinformation against heat pumps. I think the, the Telegraph article was referenced. Um, so yeah, we do need to kind of double down that this is the vision. This is the, the direction of travel um, in order to kind of reap those benefits. Thanks, and and just um, we will sort of depart the heat pump conversation in one second, but I want to, the um, in a way, your optimism, in fact, all your, the optimism on this panel is partly based on the idea that costs will fall significantly. And, you know, Clem, you sort of said it will be as cheap, if not cheaper, than a boiler in terms of the whole lifetime, co whole lifetime cost. Uh, it, by the way, it's already cheaper to own a heat pump over the lifetime cost, over the, over the lifetime versus a boiler. So um, we're we are already there. It's just that people don't make a huge number of purchasing decisions based on a very long lifetime mm. you know, heat pumps last a really long time <laughs> so okay yeah but, but yeah the the closer that we get to, but it's really important that we slash the upfront cost of it because there you know there is a price point at which people start becoming interested and, and we're, we're there now with the boiler upgrade scheme and we'll be there without it but yeah. we also need to make sure that people aren't worried about their bolts going but I guess one question is, okay, so there's the cost dimension, then there's the actual appeal of the products. And, and James, you sort of said, your, you know, part of your confidence is that the EV is an incredibly attractive aspirational product. I mean, do you see heat pumps become, coming into that category of actually an aspirational product? Or is it always fun? You know, no one really sort of gets that. No people... Anybody get excited? Exactly. That is the point. Apart from this panel. Apart from this panel. Apart from Clem. <laughs> um, it's not... Yeah, there aren't BBC programmes on people testing yeah. their... 
spoilers. It's not a thing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sorry. Heat pumps aren't as sexy as cars. They never will be. I'm sorry, they're just not. But they're a perfectly good way of heating water. Yeah. So, you know, I don't understand how these things get dragged into a culture war. Yeah. I don't yeah. understand it. Yeah. Well, I think going in their favour, what um, I, I, I would reluctantly admit they're not necessarily aspirational <laughs> products that cars are. But what, what I would well, firstly also say, there's nothing particularly aspirational about a razor and yet an astonishing amount of uh, advertising money is spent on, on uh, something that the technology has not changed in the last, as far as I'm aware, 30 years. <laughs> An extra um, blade, every <laughs> extra blade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just one more blade. Uh, but what I would, going in, in Heat Pump's favour, and why it doesn't really matter whether we make them aspirational or not, mm-hmm. is that we, we replace 1.7 million boilers every single year. So all we have to do is make sure that when you're replacing your boiler, you'd rather re- replace it with a heat pump mm. than another boiler. That's all we need to achieve. We're not. We don't. We don't. We don't need to kind of sell in anyone some like glamorous new luxury product that they don't really need. We do need it. We do need to heat our homes. Um, so I'm going to move on. My concern. My concern with the optimism, I guess, is what happens if we're wrong. <coughs> so, if we'd have done this ten years ago, I think it would be exactly the right approach. The worry I've got is. Um, if we're wrong, then we, we, we may get to another cycle that we've been through in the last 10 years where the industry loses confidence because uh, there's lots of chopping and changing and there's, you know, the Conservatives probably lobbying on uh, going on a different direction. So that would be my concern about uh, the next few years. Um, can I move on to sort of costs? So the costs of net zero um, are significant in terms of upfront costs, but then usually it leads to lower running costs. But that's a challenge to sort of fund and finance. How do we do that in a fair way? Um, how do we distribute those burdens um, in, a, in a fair way? And that fairness is critical, not just because normatively we care about fairness, but also it's probably critical to keeping the public on side. Um, who wants to have a crack at this? I will on this. I think it is... It's actually a bit frustrating, especially when you hear over the last couple of weeks, where people are trying to be supportive by saying we need to do net zero, the Prime Minister is wrong, and we have to accept there'll be pain. I don't accept that, if I'm going to be brutally honest. Like, we are going, electric vehicles, for me, are going to be, if they are not already cheaper over the total cost, we're going to get to sticker price, the front price parity, in the next couple of years. Um, I think these things are better, and they are getting cheaper, so I really dislike that. That, that messaging, and I think especially for a country like the UK, which is now trying to seek a new place in the world, um, this is, we don't really have options. We could be the last car manufacturer of petrol and diesel, but then we've lost the car manufacturing forever. Do nothing is not an option. Uh, so there is a chance here for jobs, and there is a chance here for things to be cheaper and better, and we should be gripping those things. So I think when we talk about the costs of getting to net zero, it's it's such a negative prism to look through it rather than the opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also fantastic to hear today, as I think Jess said, you know, nearly every, all of the big sort of speeches that we've heard this conference, they've mm. all been mm. talking about the green possibilities. Mm. Uh, and I think that's hugely positive. And just to go back on the government, who, to be fair, on electric vehicles and even in heat pumps, are doing some really good things. Like, just in the last year, I won't bore you with sort of the consumer regs or the rapid funds or the ZEV mandate. All of these things got press released, not even a ministerial statement. I'm sort of saying to DFT, do you want me to say something nice about this policy? <laughs> You've just done a world-leading consumer regs policy that everybody else is really jealous of. Maybe, what, did they wake up that day and think they had too much bad good news? <laughs> we need, if anything, we're being a bit too fair know. now. Yeah. It, they don't want to talk up some yeah. of their successes. It's a very, very weird thing. Jeff? Um, 
I, I mean, it's. I suppose in terms of taking the public with it, it's just trying to trying to um, get the narrative right about the, the benefits of this. So, it, and and that, that it is the the as I said earlier, the economic opportunity of the twenty first century that clean power will make you will bring people's bills down long term, um, will create jobs, and particularly, it, you know, it, you need to. Um, if we need to reassure people in some of those uh, industrial heartlands and coastal towns, you know we have um, the the possibility. For I was talking another panel about you you build your your electrolyte facilities to create green hydrogen in you know former mining towns or wherever where you got you actually got a link to the grid anyway, but you've, you're you're putting um, good new jobs into some of those uh, uh, communities that have suffered over the last. Um, few decades, so it, we shouldn't be, I suppose, pessimistic about this. We need, we, we, we. I think we can take the um, the public with us purely on the economic uh, arguments for you know cheaper bills and and good jobs, as well as the fact that we uh, need to tackle the climate the climate crisis. And you know, I, I don't think the government are in uh, the right place on the on the climate crisis when they start talking about, about um, rolling back rolling back some of the policies. Uh, and I and I think there's obviously there, there is clear a disagreement within the within, within the Conservative Party, but I think most people are seeing, you know, climate emergencies on their TV screens through the whole of the summer, and actually realise that we're in a big problem. When I go to schools, the only thing kids want to talk about is the climate crisis. It's the, you know, and that's that's got to feed through to their parents, I guess, as well. Um, and it's you know, it's clearly something that is that that is cutting through. I think. I'm going to bring in the audience in a second. Anyone else want to comment on this fairness question on distributing costs? I think one of the reasons we talk about fairness and, and why it's so salient right now in political and media conversation is because we're in an affordability crisis and we've seen bills quadruple in the last two years and people are really worried. You know, rents and mortgage are going up, food, is, food inflation is still in double digits and it's wrong of us to dismiss those concerns and there is a particular school of thought that is very much focused on how you address the concerns of people here and now. The reality is, is if that's all you focus on then you're letting down future generations and I don't mean that in the cuddly children way, I mean literally future bill payers and future taxpayers. So I think that that's why it's such a difficult conversation it's such, and, and it would be remiss of us not to think about it if in that context and we do have to think about how we are supporting people through those changes um, when we talk about things like um, retail market reform and changing that the way that energy suppliers are able to obviously some suppliers are able to engage with their customers in very different ways that the reality is is that overall the market's been loss making with suppliers being losses over the last four years at least around average sort of minus two percent um, we want a dynamic market where you're changing the nature of trust and the relationship that you have with your supplier. Um, we need to free them up to be able to do more and offer those sorts of bundled tariffs and services in an easier, easier way. So there's something there about A, targeting help and support to those who need it most, and B, kind of giving, giving a bit more freedom and flexibility so you have a bit more of an exciting offer. Um, Matt, do you want to comment on this? And, and Maybe I can answer the question, which is, is there any case for socialising some of the costs of this transition, either through the 28 billion public funding or through, um, you know, through bills, um, so that we can actually particularly protect those on, on lower incomes? 
Yeah, I just want to make two short points on this, I suppose. One is that, again, maybe on the optimistic side, in terms of cost um, and kind of the, the upfront cost of investing in new technologies like heat pumps and cars and so on, and we often talk as if people will only buy the cheapest thing and that everything has to be cheap, but actually that's not how we make decisions as consumers a lot of the time. I mean, it, obviously, budgets are constrained to different extents, depending on who you are and what income level you have, but actually we don't always buy the cheapest thing. And one um, sort of an analogy that I've been sort of sort of struck by really is um, that actually I think about the same proportion same yeah same proportion of people same number of people each year get a new kitchen as get a new boiler so it's something like 1.2 million people are replacing their kitchen they're ripping out a perfectly good kitchen in most cases and putting in a new one and not thinking about lifetime costs or payback or even the uplift to their home normally just that you know they'd like a new kitchen and, and, and they're putting up the hassle and so on so I think um, on that side um, you know we can I suppose be you know, be more optimistic about what cost people will accept. Having said that, there's clearly a lot of people who can't afford the transition themselves, and we need to have um, a good story or a good sort of promise to people, I suppose, about how we will support them. And if we look back to previous historical transitions, um, you know, things like, um, you know, going, going right back to the middle of the last century, kind of upgrading homes to put in bathrooms, indoors, and, you know, indoor toilets and, and kitchens and so on that was kind of done to all pre-1919 homes. Um, you know, there was a lot of support for that, a lot of, um, sort of financial support, but also publicity about it over, over several decades. But in all, and it's clearly something that makes people's lives better. There's no re reason to not do it. But there still needed to be quite a lot of targeted support towards the end of that transition in the 80s to make sure that everyone literally did it. So I think we need to, you know, we haven't got that long to do the transition to time. That took 40, 50 years. Um, we need to be thinking about how to sort of get to the, say, the last, whatever it is, 20, 30 percent of people who are going to struggle to pay for this and work out exactly how we can support them. Okay. I'm um, um, keep it quick because I think Jess got to go at five and I just want to get a couple of questions in. Okay. Uh, I think the first very important point here, and it's almost unique to energy, um, rather than, for example, electric vehicles, is that... Uh, Ta bill payers are taxpayers. Everybody pays, and every household pays an energy bill, um, and every obviously every ta ta household pays a tax bill of some form or other. And so, the distinction between I think um, that 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 fact has often been used as an excuse to put the costs of doing things, costs of co policy, onto taxpayers, onto bill payers, because then it doesn't show up in a, in, a ta in a treasury tax bill. The reality of that is it's a much more regressive way of doing anything. If the, same people, if the same group of people are all paying the same amount of money towards something, it should sit where possible um, on, on, a, on a tax bill, I would argue. Um, the second thing is it's incumbent on businesses like Octopus to drive down the cost of things. We shouldn't just be sitting there thinking, oh, well, it's, very, it's all going to be very expensive. We, we need a ruthless competition in the market, and we need to be absolutely ruthless about driving down costs, which means that we need to be striving for zero subsidy as quickly as possible. It's actually incumbent on businesses to, to ask for less subsidy, not more subsidy. Um, and finally, my, as, in terms of how we spend money, both whether it's sitting on bills or on, on taxpayers, I think we need to always treat with a... Uh, with a very large pinch of salt um, claims around the need for anticipatory investment because off, very, very often that's uh, 
a, a nice little story spun by regulated monopolies as an excuse for getting lots more money out of out of people, often more than is needed. And I think we just need to really scrutinise and be a lot more optimistic about the opportunities, both for cutting costs of technologies, but also then using technologies like electric vehicles and heat pumps to avoid upgrading grid infrastructure where it's un unnecessary. Great, we're going to get on to that afterwards. Yep. Um, Gentleman there, and then um, lady there, and then we'll we'll um, let Jeff take any questions and, and leave. <laughs> Thanks very much, Chris Brown from Future Fit Homes. Um, just congratulations to Nesta on a brilliant panel on the work you're doing on heat pumps, and a shout out for your visit a heat pump scheme, which I think is absolutely superb. Um, I just wonder if we're putting too much burden on the occupier of a house. Something like three to four million houses change hands, not change hands, change occupiers every year. There's a moment in time when we could professionalise this, mm. take the burden off the person who, you know, hopefully won't do it again for 20 or 30 years. Is that an opportunity? Great point. And then, ladies and Uh, hi, I'm Georgina from Rolls-Royce SMR. Um, I wanted to talk about net zero and electrification and how those are issues that cross multiple departments, right? And I think a frustration from business is often when you have a conversation with one department, it's siloed and it won't go to another. Even within the old bays, <laughs> it was within the same department, they weren't talking to each other. And I think the intention is always there. Yes, we will be better at this, but on the working level, nothing is really done. So to Jeff, what would Labour plan to do? And then to the rest of the panel, what, what sort of tangible actions would you, would you like to see from an incoming late, well, a Labour government in that regard? Because I think that would genuinely, <laughs> uh, the pace for decision-making would be so much better. But. Well, to make, make things more joined up across departments. Yeah, exactly. It's a nice principle, but nothing is ever really done. Okay. <laughs> Jeff? Um, well, I mean, I, I think that's why we call it a mission. You know, Keir has talked about the five missions, and um, particularly in terms of uh, net zero and, and decarbonisation, um, Ed, Ed has talked about how we need the same sort of approach as we had with the vaccines task force. So we bring, need to bring everybody together across government and working with industry um, to, to make that mission happen. Um, and I, I hope the fact that it's, you know, th this mission has been in Keir's speech today, it was in the main feature of Ed's speech yesterday and Rachel's speech yesterday, gives a signal that as a, as a party, if we're going to get into government, this is, a, this, is a, um, this is a key priority that we're going to try and deliver together across government, uh, working together with industry. So I hope that sort of... Um, Without getting into how exactly we'll do that in terms of who's going to uh, convene the joint the joint meetings of the, the various uh, departments, I won't get into that. Um, but I hope I hope it gives a signal of the priority um, that we uh, that we give it. And I suppose it also plays into the, the the first question, which is about about housing, and we need to have housing involved in the in those conversations as well, and where and how we um, how we get landlords and. Um, and social landlords involved in this. Um, I mean, we I have a fantastic uh, little, uh, little project in uh, housing estate in my constituency where 
um, some 1980s housing is all being fitted across the whole estate with heat pumps. Really popular with the uh, with the with the residents, um, and we need we need to to build on that sort of project to deliver across the whole housing housing sector. Right. Thanks. I will say the one thing, and I think you're never going to get rid of government silos, but <laughs> the one thing that I think is going to be huge if Labour do get in next time around is that it appears Rachel Reeves will be the first supportive yeah. Chancellor yeah. on this agenda yeah. we've ever had. We've just had, you know, 13 years. I would actually say probably a, bit, a little bit longer if I'm going to go in around. <laughs> we've never had a Chancellor that's been really behind this, and that is where everything gets blocked. You hear from the you know, departments want something, Treasury's blocked it. Having yeah, a more yeah. open treasury on this will make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, let me just, uh, I'll just pick up a quick, on that joined up government point, when the Climate Change Act was created in the mid-2000s, um, what we created first was something called the Office of Climate Change that was a cross-departmental office that um, was meant to be a shared resource for multiple departments, and that's how we actually got the Climate Change Act through Parliament in a, in a record time. We didn't even have a green paper or a white paper. We went straight to a bill. I think there's something about shared infrastructure across departments and having a sense that there's a family of net zero departments, not just the, the not just DESNES. Um, but it does require basically the centre of government, particularly Treasury and Number 10, to really enforce that and engage in it. Um, and then I think you do get more joining up. Well, and actually, a, a, a very good source of joined up thinking is the Climate Change Committee, which, of course, came out of the Climate Change Act as well. And uh, I'd like to see them listen to uh, more, more. Yeah. so that would probably be a good place to start. Well, I think the other one, <laughs> one of the biggest differences about climate change policy, almost than any other policy, is that you have to add up the impact. Mm. So you have to sort of say, okay, this policy yeah, will produce yeah, this absolutely. technology change, which will produce this emission savings, yeah. is it enough? Whereas every other yeah. policy dossier just has a, a vague objective and a list of initiatives, and you never know whether it adds up. So I think that discipline that was created yeah. Is, is quite a, a good ingredient for, for joining up. Can I just pick up on this first question and get people's views on moments of... Uh, so I think this idea that um, you know, when people buy a home or when people move home, are there particular moments that we should be targeting? Um, and, and what would a kind of robust or ambitious way of doing that look like? Go for it, yeah. So, yeah, there's um, a proposal at the moment around stamp duty. So this is the energy saving stamp duty proposal. So at the point of sale of a house, which is when people are most likely to make renovations or get a new kitchen, get a new bathroom, they're incentivized to also increase um, the energy performance of their house. So they'll get a rebate after two years if they've increased the, the house, say, by two EPC brackets. So that's one idea which is being proposed. But I do think thinking about trigger points is really key as Madeleine mentioned like people are always buying new kitchens new bathrooms don't necessarily need one and something I really like about the KFW German development bank is that loan for retrofitting you can also get a new kitchen as well so it's kind of acknowledging you know maybe people just want to press a button and get heating but if they also want to get a shiny new kitchen then that is the aspirational part of the renovation so yeah I do absolutely think that that's a very clever behavioral policy. Um, well, I just I agree with Juliet. Um, I, I like the stamp duty rebate idea um, and acting when homes change hands makes total sense. And actually, just when you were talking, I was just imagining some sort of crack squad of electric heating installers who kind of nip into void homes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's what's in that. Great. Um, let's take some more questions. Let's take three. Um, okay, uh, gentleman over there, and then um, those two there, please. Thank you very much. Colin Challen from Scarborough and Whitby CLP and a former MP and uh, 
founder of the all-party climate change group, so I was very happy to be involved in the Climate Change Act discussions those years ago. Also noticing that, uh, it's a pity that Jeff had to leave, but governments over the last 20 or 30 years have flip-flopped on energy policy, insulation policies and all the rest of it. We saw a lot of that under Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. So uh, it's not just Rishi Sunak, it's great to bash him this week, but governments over time have been inconsistent and that's their consistency, is that they are inconsistent. I think I've heard a bit of a sales talk this afternoon to get us all to buy more electricity. And the real question is, where does that electricity come from? There's no point getting an electric vehicle if the electricity is produced from a fossil fuel source. And at the moment in this country, nearly three quarters of our energy consumption overall comes from gas. All that infrastructure is already in the ground, in the pipes. So I think it's worth bearing in mind, we need to ask that question. And is it going to come from nuclear? Rolls-Royce want to sell us 18 modular, small modular nuclear power plants. How long will that take? They aren't noted for delivering on time. So this idea that we should all buy more electricity to fuel all these things, I think is a little bit um, off colour. So I would hope that we can actually also look at other things like behavioural change. The mayor of Paris is banning vehicles from the centre of Paris. The Dutch are building new communities which do not allow for cars. And there are many ways of achieving this. And I hope these new towns that we've heard about will all be to passive home standards. We've fitted solar roofs, solar thermal and solar power. I'm not sure that they will be, because the building lobby will be hard on the heels of that one. Thank you. Let's, let's just take the three, and then we'll um, come back to people here. There's, I think it's two people at the front, and then... Thank you. Uh, Justin Young from Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. Uh, we've mentioned it briefly, and it's, I guess, slightly building on the, the question earlier there. It's about the grid. Uh, we know that there needs to be massive investment into the grid to actually get the electricity uh, in place. At the moment, at the rate of growth of the grid, some figures are saying it's going to be 2084 before we've actually got a grid that can deal with what we need. So um, could we understand where that investment is going to come from and how it's going to accelerate? Thank you, Let's, let's take two more on this table and we'll come to the panel. Thank you. Um, Sam Rees, also from the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. It was interesting the um, green stamp duty incentive was mentioned because actually RICS were approached about two years ago now or so to put our name against it. And at the time, we were quite sceptical about signing up to it, mostly because there wasn't actually any regulation behind it to force someone to actually invest in the upgrades. And we were concerned that actually would it just mean people just take the hit with the additional stamp duty costs, it wouldn't actually then invest £10,000 or so in an upgrade, even though a few months later they can get a financial reward for it, because it'd just be an actual, such a minimal benefit in the long term. So I guess my question is, it's all well and good having grants, the technology there, what regulation should be there for the own-occupier sector to actually drive it? We couldn't deliver MEES within the PRS, so what chance do we have to deliver it within 60% of the housing market, which is privately owned? Thank you. And the gentleman behind. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, Councillor Abdul-Jabbar from Oldham, Cabinet Member for Finance and Low Carbon. Uh, very interesting conversation. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask was whether the panel has considered how we make electricity power a bit more cheaper than what it is now. 
because you know cars and heat pumps won't be very attractive if people can't afford it. So I just wondered whether, uh, you know, you t one of the speakers talked about removing the le levy from the electricity bill. Uh, that's fine. That will require government policy change on a massive scale, and I don't know whether they will do it or not. But what about the thoughts of creating local um, energy markets where you encourage people to develop renewable technology and store renewable technology to produce power, but they get a, a decent price for it. And that way, the, the installation that you put, particularly the heat pumps, could be very attractive. And local authorities could be a coordinator or take lead in areas. And I'm happy to do it. I'm, you know, but there's lots of regulation in there at this moment in time, which prevents us doing it. So I just wondered whether panelists have a view about that, um, to remove the regulation, make it easier, uh, and actually give businesses and local authorities and residents the chance to generate uh, power from renewable sources and then install all the technologies that you talked about. Okay, great. I'd be really interested in that. Um, thanks very much. I might just try and link some of those co um, questions together because I think there's something in both the question about grid and your question about how do we do electrification well in the least cost possible way. And that's partly about making sure that we have electricity capacity built in the right places so that we don't have to transport it as far. It's also about making sure we do demand-side response and shaving off peak demand and using automation to do that. Um, because as Clem said, you know, if we just sort of anticipate and build, there's a risk that this is going to cost a huge amount and then that'll be put on bills. And so I think my question to the panel really is, how do we do this, um, do the infrastructure in a way that doesn't act as a constraint, but also... Um, is done in a sort of cost-effective way. And I wonder whether, Dara, you mentioned this at the beginning, I think, the infrastructure challenge, whether you could pick up that question. Yeah, I mean, I think all, all of these conversations are happening as part of the review of electricity market arrangements, really. And I think there's, there are various views on how to move forward in this space. There's a huge potential for system benefits. The reality is, is, you know, to the point on grid, for example, we know that the planning system is holding back investment in this really critical energy infrastructure. There's um, over 600 projects waiting to connect. And I think it's fair to say now that grid connections are a bit of an economic blocker. And I think we've seen that reflected not just at Labour conference, but also at the Conservative Party conference. I think it's quite widely recognised. So, you know, the balance between energy security and stable pricing with protecting the environment and communities is one that I think we can't let hold up kind of moving forward in this space. So we need, again, coming back down to strong, strong decisions. I think consenting timelines have increased by over 60% since um, 2012. And the average waiting time, I think, for, for um, projects to, to get a connection is four and a half years. Um, and that's just way, way too long. So that in itself, I, I think you've identified the problem. All I'm doing is giving you some numbers that back up what you're, what you're worried about. The reality is, I think, I think we're trying to move as fast as they can on, on changing the way that the queuing system works. We um, have an energy bill that should go through Parliament, which should um, create uh, the, the future system operator that should look in a more holistic way right across the system, um, which should give bit more of that foresight on actually what's that strategic planning take on, on all of this and, and address some of the conversations about things like decoupling electricity and gas prices, things like that. So, you know, there is, there is 
there is a movement, but creating a new institution isn't a silver bullet, right? It doesn't resolve it. But what it does is it hopefully gives you more of a kind of governance and framework where, you know, alongside the Climate Change Committee, you have a future system operator who's looking right across and making, you know, both giving counsel to government, but also um, kind of putting forward a strong, strong decision making. Right, thank you. Who else wants to go? Well, I was, as we are at a Labour conference, um, I, I, one thing I would say was um, really exciting this week is Rachel Reeves' announcement of uh, introducing contestability competition into grid connections. And I think that kind of mentality is, is really what we need to be seeing a lot more of. So rather than having a queue that you join the back of, if you can't get a, a grid connection quickly, you should be able to build your own. It's, it's, it's incredible in this country that we that we, I mean, I suppose it's quite typical that we put everything into queues rather than just letting people go off and, and be enterprising. Um, in terms of the, uh, I, there's a question about um, are, are we not just trying to sell a lot more electricity? Um, what I'd say is that I, I think it's help, more helpful to think about energy overall, which is, I think, what you were alluding to with your statistic about, um, about how much of the energy we use as gas. So not electricity, but energy. And I think we have to, when we're thinking about you know, going forward as an economy, how you know, the decisions we're taking, we need to make sure that we, we don't artificially separate out the gas that we burn for our heat and the, and the electricity that we um, consume to, to power and heat our homes um, and our cars. Even if you were to, uh, even if you were to run an electricity grid exclusively on gas, you would still burn less gas with a heat pump than you do burning it in your house with a boiler. And that's because of this incredible efficiencies of, of, um, of heat pumps. But what that means is that overall, by, use, by moving to electric, to electric and similar, it's not quite as extraordinary in electric vehicles, but there, you know, there are efficiencies in electric vehicles as well. By moving to electrified goods, we actually are consuming less energy overall, and that's what makes the economy more productive. Now, you then, you're right. You then do need to think about how do we switch, a, you know, switch from two energy systems to a single energy system. That also has efficiencies. You're not having to run two concurrent systems. You are optimizing a single electricity grid. And then you are introducing competition to do so, so that you don't end up with building... Um, unnecessary infrastructure. And then on to the point about local markets, absolutely. What we should be doing is, if your local wind, if it's really windy where you are, you should be able to look out of your window, see the wind turbine spinning and think, oh, I'll put a wash on because it'll be really cheap at the moment. What happens at the moment is we have a single electricity price for the entire of the UK that, that means that sometimes we are paying wind turbines in, in Scotland to switch off while concurrently uh, importing electricity from it through, through internet connectors from Europe. It, it's insane and we, we just need to get those markets, those price signals, those market signals flowing through into the market so that we can uh, in, create an create a, a innovation-led and a competition-led marketplace. And very quickly, yeah, yep. it is, even on a very high, a carbon-dense grid, it is still electric vehicles are still more carbon efficient. Um, obviously, we haven't got a particularly, uh, um, certainly our grid is getting having more renewables. And I think just to follow on from that, when we talk about shaving and peak loading, it can be very sort of confusing. If you charge your car overnight, um, you are doing the grid a favor because obviously there isn't as much um, demand during the night. So it should make the whole system more efficient. Uh, okay, um, in the last, what, literally two minutes, 
I'm going to give you 10 seconds each to, to give me one policy, the one policy you prioritise in the first 100 days of a Labour government. Shifting levels of electricity bills. Say that nearer the microphone. <laughs> Just in case. Shifting levels of electricity bills. <laughs> um, mad. Okay, um, being clear that electrification and not hydrogen is the way forward for home heating. Okay, <laughs> Dara? I think putting out a social tariff consultation and protecting the people who can't really afford to kind of pay the price of moving those, those costs from electricity to gas. Um, I would say sort out the existing schemes, so make sure they're running properly. Uh, and I would try and introduce policies to help people on lower incomes get into EVs, because at the moment it could be another decade until sort of lower income people can get in sort of benefits that, that EVs have. And also copy Oldham. Like, what were you, Cabinet Lead for Finance and Climate? Yeah, I like that. Put those two things together more often. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you very much to all the panellists. Thank you very much for a really good set of questions. Um, <laughs>